Now, if you're a fan of the other shows we produce, like Saving Apollo 13 or the Brady Haywood podcast, you'll know that we're really interested in failure, particularly what causes failure. So today's episode is all about failure in a complex system, specifically how blackouts occur in the power grid. And to talk this through, we're joined again by Seth Blomzak, Professor of Energy Policy and Economics and International Affairs in the Department of Energy and Mineral Engineering at Pennsylvania State University. He's also a co-director of the Penn State Center for Energy Law and Policy, and he's an external faculty of the Santa Fe Institute. Now, Seth's been on the show before, and he's talked about the power grid and its history. And in this episode, we're going to talk about how blackouts propagate through the power grid. Because the really interesting thing is we've got models of networks. We've got models that show how information flows through a network or how disease flows through a network. But have we got a good model for how blackouts propagate through the power grid? And if we don't, why not? And what can we do about it? And one of the things I absolutely love about this episode is that by the time we've talked all this through, we end up winding our way back to one of the topics that keeps reoccurring again and again on many of the episodes of Simplifying Complexity. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Seth, welcome back on the show. Last time you were on, we talked all about the power grid, essentially as a complex system. Today, we're going to talk about blackouts. Why are we interested? I mean, I know it sounds obvious, but why are we interested in blackouts? Well, I mean, the obvious thing is that blackouts, they're disruptive. They're socially and economically costly. They can potentially even threaten people's lives. And so we want to prevent these things to the extent that we can. We're probably never going to totally get rid of blackouts. There are always things that could possibly happen. But we want to really kind of reduce the risk of these big blackouts that can be very socially and economically disruptive. So that's why we care. <laughs> and one of the both tricky and interesting things about thinking about blackouts is that they're very, very hard to predict. It's difficult to really understand how they propagate through the power grid once something bad starts to happen. How does that move or propagate its way through the power grid? And it's an area that for you know, people who are into complex systems has been a really big challenge because there are lots of other networks for which there are really nice topological models for how things propagate and how failures can cascade through systems. And by and large, these models kind of fall apart when you try to basically stick them to the power grid. And so from a complex systems perspective, there is this open and really fascinating question of why power blackouts on the grid behave the way that they behave. And if we can figure that out, that might tell us something about how we can kind of design and operate the grid to help reduce that risk. And can you give us an example or tell us the story really of one of the more or a couple of the more famous type of 
blackouts that sort of defy your your idea of just how bad they can be or how widespread they can be? Probably one of the best examples is a blackout that happened on the power grid in the Western United States. Okay. And so it basically started with, you basically had a piece of equipment that basically got overloaded. And so it got overloaded to the point where basically it shut itself down because everything on the power grid, they basically have these kill switches. It's actually really meant to protect the equipment so that the equipment itself doesn't get too damaged, right? So that this piece of equipment will basically separate itself from the grid, okay? So that was kind of the initiating event. Then what happened next was that this initiating event started a cascade throughout the entire Western power grid that led to dozens and dozens of individual pieces of equipment in the Western power grid failing, And these are big things like big power plants, big transmission lines, and it left millions of people in the dark. But the thing about it is that when you line up, say, some dominoes and you push the first domino, basically the next one to fall is the one next to the one that you pushed, right? Because one domino knocks over the other domino, which knocks over the next domino. And in these power blackouts, right, and in in this one in particular, that didn't happen. This initiating event led to the failure of all of these other pieces of equipment, but they didn't fail in a nice straight line. So there was this initiating event that was somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. And then the next thing that failed was in the state of Washington. And then the next thing that failed was in the state of California. And so these dominoes that fell in the Western U.S. power grid, they basically played hopscotch over hundreds or thousands of miles. And eventually the cascade, you know, essentially came to rest, just like eventually you run out of dominoes to knock over. And so eventually the cascade came to rest. But if you look at the kind of the spatial pattern of what failed, where it failed, and the order in which it failed, it just seems to defy logic. Because you really had these failures kind of hopscotching all over the Western power grid as opposed to having kind of lines of things all failing in a row. And this was really interesting from a complex systems perspective because there was basically no existing theory that would explain this cascade and how this cascade propagated and why it stopped where it stopped. So you're saying there's nothing in network theory or how we understand any of these systems that explains the, can we say, unique aspects of power grid failures? There are lots of good network theories about how failures propagate through interconnected systems. And a lot of them are very sort of topologically based, where either kind of things that are next to each other will fail or things that are very highly connected within the network are more likely to start large propagating, cascading failures, right? And so we have theories like that, which do well at explaining failure and propagation behavior on kind of a bunch of different systems, but not the power grid. A couple of questions there. What do you mean by topological? And can you give us an example of a system where there's failures where these models work well? By topological, I basically mean like the structure of the network. So what is connected to what? And if you look at the spider web or all of all of those connections or, you know, whatever the network looks like, how well connected is the network? 
Is everything connected to everything else? Are there a few things that are really, really well connected and other things are kind of like out at the periphery of the network? You know, when we talk about topology, that's really kind of the structure of what we are talking about. Presumably that means that by really understanding the structure, we get a much better understanding of how the actual structure fails. Yeah, because you can because of that structure and by looking at what things are connected to what other things and how strongly they're connected, starting from some point, almost trace out this path of some kind of propagation or some kind of failure. You know, these sort of models of how things propagate through networks, those have worked well for things like understanding the spread of information in social networks They have done sort of reasonably well in kind of understanding the spread of disease, sort of things like where you have the transmission of something from one point to another. And, you know, when you talk about like a failure on the power grid, you have something that is being transmitted from one thing to another. When something fails on the power grid, the electricity demand is still there and the rest of the grid has to pick up the slack. And so basically how kind of that gets spread around the rest of the power grid that hasn't failed, that's sort of the tricky thing to predict. You've got no real models to be able to work with, obviously, this very real human phenomenon that's a real problem. So where is the research at the moment, Seth? So, I mean, I think this is sort of one of these cases where there's only sort of so far that existing models can go. If you have a power grid that has a really, really simple structure, kind of a bunch of things that are connected in a row, which you might have on like a small island or something like that. In those cases, it's much easier to understand cascades. And it's really where you have these very kind of highly meshed interconnected networks where really we're kind of developing a theory basically becomes difficult. And some of the research that you know is being done to try to understand how things like system structure, right, contribute to patterns of failures. The things that have been kind of research efforts that have been the most successful, you know, have really been those where, you know, it's almost like you start by throwing out everything that you think you know about networks. (laughs) I've read that in your work, and it's a great line. (laughs) And saying, what is it that we really want to understand? Some of the work that I have done, for example, has sort of gone back to this very basic question of like, when we talk about the structure of the power grid, what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about the physical connections between power plants and substations and transmission lines? Are we talking about kind of the strength of the electrical connections, right? Kind of how much resistance there is in some part of a circuit, right? Because that is going to determine how the power flows, right, as much as the physical topology, are we talking about some measure of how much capacity a section of the grid has? I mean, there's all these different ways to look at it. And this is, this is one of the things that makes a seemingly simple question about the power grid really complicated to answer, because you can define structure in sort of all of these different ways, and you'll get kind of a different answer. This is not something that I have worked on, but I think some of the sort of the most creative research that is trying to get 
at this kind of structure performance connection for the power grid has really kind of involved basically kind of redefining what exactly we mean by the grid as a network. And this line of research has basically developed something called an influence graph, okay, to try to model how failures propagate on power grids, right? And the idea behind an influence graph is that you have some system, you have some physical network, but you're not going to represent it as a physical network with nodes and edges and things like that. The way that you're going to think about, if I may say, drawing the network and kind of visualizing its structure is not through physical connections, but the effect that one part of the network has on other parts of the network. This is the sort of thing that you either have to build through lots and lots of data, which for the power grid can be difficult because a lot of that data is sort of kept under lock and key, or you sort of have to basically build it by running computer simulations. Basically, the idea is that in an influence graph, what you do is if the failure of one piece of equipment in a number of kind of different real-world examples or computer simulations tends to be followed by the failure of another piece of equipment, then you have a very strong connection in your influence graph between those two things. And so you're basically building the network not based on what its physical on-the-ground topology is, but by how different parts of the network influence each other. So if you build the network that way and look at it as an influence graph, then you find that failures actually propagate through the influence graph much more like we would expect them to propagate in a topological model. And so that's really interesting because you know what it suggests is that maybe because a lot of existing topological models haven't done a very good job of predicting or explaining failures on the power grid, we tend to blame the models. And one of the sort of interesting things about the influence graph, or one of the things it suggests is that maybe the topological model itself actually isn't bad. And we're just looking at the topology of the power grid in the wrong way. So when you say influence graph, you're almost mapping out the natural vulnerabilities in the network. And then you end up with a new network, which is kind of the network of influence or network of vulnerabilities. Yes, that's basically the idea. And what have you found when you do this? Is there any specific characteristics that show greater influence than others? I don't know if it's so much that there are characteristics that show greater influence, but you know, you see failures propagate in what looks like a much more logical way. So this kind of hopscotching right, that I was explaining at the beginning of the podcast, you don't see that as much when you have an influence graph. And you see failures that propagate or that tend to propagate much more locally. And so if you have enough information, data or simulations, to build up an influence graph, then you can look at the structure of the influence graph and potentially start to understand the different types of failures that might occur that look like they're very localized in the influence graph, but in the physical on-the-ground system will not be localized. And that may give you some information about how you might want to harden different parts of your actual power grid in order to prevent cascading, you know, kind of these big cascading blackouts from getting too big or getting even bigger. Part of the reason that I think that you get these very non-local kind of hopscotchy cascades in real power grids 
as we discussed in the in one of the previous episodes, these grids are really large, and they were not kind of all built at once by some master planner. They were really built for very local conditions and then interconnected, and then they're kind of upgraded in this piecemeal fashion. And so when you have something that fails in one part of this really, really big system, basically the load the failed part of the system was carrying is going to be redistributed around basically the entire rest of the interconnected grid. And it just may happen that that gets redistributed in a way that is going to overload some random other piece of equipment that is, you know, physically, geographically very far away, okay, that, you know, was basically designed to handle kind of local conditions in that part of the grid and not deal with a failure a thousand miles away. And, you know, one of the sort of nice things about the influence graph is that, you know, you can essentially kind of capture that non-local behavior through the process of actually kind of building up the influence graph. So how do you, and it's probably good to remind the listeners about you're one of the key things when we talk about redistribution of the system is that sort of what comes in has to go out or what goes out has to come in. So you've got a system in equilibrium that whatever electricity you've taken out, you've got to be putting the same amount in. So if you're getting redistributions that they can cascade. And how do you build up these influence graphs? How do you capture the fact that this wave can almost propagate to the other end of the network and not break anything in between? but then locally overload another area? Ideally, in a perfect world, you would build up an influence graph with lots of data. So you would gather data from lots of cascading failures, but that data is not always available. So you're sort of limited in the extent to which you can build these up through actual real-world blackouts. And so where they've been built, they have tended to have, you know, be built through computer simulations. And so you have computer models of the power grid that will basically simulate cascading failures. Within the computer simulation, you're going to like, you're going to knock out one piece of equipment. And then the basically through the computer simulation, you see how that load is going to be redistributed amongst everything else in the system and what other components might fail following the kind of the redistribution of that load. A lot of it is very simulation-based because we don't have access to a lot of data. We can't really do sort of experiments on the power grid. I don't think people would like that very much. And what does it tell us in terms of protection? You know, and does it, is there any sort of global takeaways in terms of things we should be doing with the grid or things we should potentially do with the grid that we're not doing at the moment? There are ways that through influence graphs and sort of through other ways that people have been able to identify what are kind of potentially critical pieces of equipment or sets of pieces of equipment, right? And so in an influence graph, for example, a particularly critical piece of equipment is one that is likely to have lots of influence connections. And so it's going to look like kind of a very sort of central part of the influence graph. There kind of have been other attempts to use traditional topological models to identify critical pieces of infrastructure. And that's a little bit harder, again, because the way that things actually fail on the power grid don't sort of follow neatly that physical topology. But if you look at areas of the grid that tend to 
be pretty highly loaded a lot of the time. So they're kind of, they're always working really hard. Those tend to be more critical pieces of equipment, right? And, and things like that. And this is not a sort of a dead end area of research, right? And so I don't have all of the answers. We're still looking for ways to really kind of better explain how failures propagate, where the critical pieces of equipment are, and to really understand another kind of complex systems aspect of blackouts, which is that big blackouts tend to happen much more frequently than we would expect if blackouts were just kind of totally random things. What do you mean by that, Seth? That's interesting. Well, so if blackouts were totally random things, you would basically kind of see the frequency of big blackouts kind of fall off in this kind of nice, what we call a bell curve, where your small blackouts would be much, much, much more frequent than your really big blackouts. But when you look at actual blackout data, and this data you can actually get, like if you just want data on the size of a blackout, you can actually get that. The kind of the biggest blackouts happen more frequently than you would expect if blackouts were basically just random events that follow this kind of bell curve, right? I mean, the way that, the sort of wonky way that we talk about it in complex systems parlance is either that the distribution of blackouts has a heavy tail, a fat tail distribution, right? So you get these kind of extreme observations more often than you think. We've had Jeff West on the show talking all about power laws. And we've also had Neil Johnson on talking about power laws as well with the Sampal model. So do blackouts follow a, a, a power law? They do. And um, we are not 100% sure why, but they do. Part of that reason may go back to the structure of things like the influence graph. And there may be something about either the physical topology of the power grid or its kind of influence topology that can kind of help explain why you see these big blackouts sort of more often than you would expect. But it's something that you see in the data and we don't have sort of a universal airtight explanation for it. But yeah, we see it in so many complex systems. And is there are grids fundamentally different in between countries or are they still pretty much the same? It's one of the fascinating things with Jeff West and cities and Louis Spettencourt as well was the this concept that, you know, our cities all over the world can be culturally incredibly different, but they still follow the same power laws. So the way we build cities is fundamentally the same in terms of how we humans interact in them. Can we say the same about the power grid? My own view is there's sort of less universality in this. The physical structure of power grids, right, is going to be driven by the geographic extent over which you're building the power grid, the kind of the distribution of population, the distribution of resources, like what you're using to generate electricity, whether it is oil or natural gas or wind or water or, or whatever. And in some cases, also kind of the physical topography of where it's the grid is being built, right? So it's one of the reasons we don't have a single national power grid in the United States is that if you were going to do that, you would have to cross the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> and, you know, that's sort of an expensive proposition. I mean, if you look at power grids that are built over pretty large areas, many of them are going to be fairly interconnected, but they're going to look interconnected in different ways, right? And so even if you look at 
the power grid in the eastern United States versus the western United States. Both of those are very large, very interconnected grids, but they look very different. The eastern U.S. grid basically looks like a mess of spaghetti, and the western U.S. US grid looks a little bit like a donut. Like a donut? Why does it look like a donut? Yeah, Why a little bit. Like a I mean, it's, I, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of pushing yeah, my donut anyway, yeah. analogy here a little far, right? But like in the Western United States, you have these population centers that are separated by much longer distances than you have on average in the Eastern United States. And at least traditionally, this is going to change as we get lots more renewables on the grid. But kind of historically, you have had kind of the major sources of power for the Western United States grid have been hydroelectric plants in the north, right? And some coal and nuclear plants in the south. And so the kind of the transmission grid sort of grew up around that distribution of resources and population centers. And it didn't need to be kind of as tightly meshed as the Eastern U.S. grid. And are the blackouts fundamentally different between the, the two? The way that they propagate, I'm not sure. I mean, you, you see this sort of hopscotching, right, in big blackouts in both the eastern and western U.S. grids. You see power laws in blackout sizes. So there are some differences in that topological structure. Those differences in topological structure don't seem to lead to really fundamental differences in the blackout behavior. So you still get the power law. And so when, when you know you've got blackouts of certain sizes, you can you know, estimate how many blackouts you'll get of a different size. Um, just finally, the blackouts that was in Texas over the last years, do you know much about that, Seth, in terms of what drove that? You're talking about the blackouts that happened kind of in the winter of 2021, right? They had this really sort of yes, brutal yes. winter storm. I think that's a very instructive example about not just kind of the failure of a single system, but the failure of multiple interconnected systems. Because in Texas, because of the same problem, because of this extremely cold weather, you had lots of failures of power plants, natural gas, wind, nuclear, right, on the power grid itself. You also had failures in the natural gas supply system, which was basically feeding a lot of the power plants. And so if you were to sort of just look at those power plants that failed in Texas only because of the weather, you would have had a much less severe event in terms of the need to have big blackouts than you actually did. And so the way that the Texas blackouts are really instructive is that if you have systems that are very tightly coupled, then you need to think about not just how something cascades within one of those systems, but also how it could cascade across systems. So we also don't have sort of grand unifying theories of this, right? And it's, that's still, it's a very active research area. But I think the Texas blackout is really instructive for that kind of thing. Well said. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. 
This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. 